This is Dr. Frank Leon Roberts. And my name is Aldo B. Martin, and this is Finding James Baldwin. Strange Fruit, recorded and sung by Billie Holiday in 1939, is considered by some to be the unofficial start of the civil rights movement. The song is about lynching. The term lynching comes from the lynch laws of the revolutionary period. To lynch means to punish without trial. During the Reconstruction era in the United States, the term lynch meant to hang black men, specifically from trees. The opening line from the song specifically references the trees when it says, Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. In 2002, strange fruit was preserved in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress because it is considered to be culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Although Billie Holiday recorded and sung the song, it was written by a man named Abe Mirapol in 1937. Abe Mirapol wrote the song while he was a teacher at Dewitt Clinton High School. Before he wrote Strange Fruit? Before he taught at Clinton High School? Before he attended Harvard? and before he attended City College of New York. He graduated from Clinton High School in 1921, where he wrote for The Magpie. tells me that on judgment day in some other clime I was gonna have to give account of my earthly time they tells me that if I drink gin lie or steal or fight I ain't gonna never be allowed to walk in Jesus light Damas tells me all these things goes to church on Sunday from their shoulders sprouting wings, shooting crap on Monday. Nah, I never managed yet to get real good religion. Don't know why I didn't. Turned for lack of teaching. Guess I was just a sinner, bound to go to hell. Just the same, I was kind of glad. Shooting crap is swell.
Oh my goodness. You know, I love that horn on that. I love that horn. I, I felt like I'm gonna age myself here, but it sounded like been it, doing it, that it could have been. <laughs> You know, you said that kind of low. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, you know, I don't know if the microphone picked that up. No, it's, I feel like that song could have been in uh, in some sort of segment of the Jeffersons. Yeah. I could see George Jefferson walking out to that song. I can't. I, you can't? I could. I could. So what are your thoughts on this one, man? I love this. I actually love this poem because this is the most defiant um, to me, this is the most defiant poet. I read this poem. Strong words. Yeah, because um, to me, the sort of the turn of the poem is, you know, they say, they say, they say. But it's sort of like saying, I say, mm-hmm. I's kind of glad, right? Which is that like defiant spirit in Baldwin speaking back against the sort of the sort of religious evangelical, the, the, the evangelical judgmental uh, language that he was certainly being reared in, in that holiness tradition. He kind of, he's kind of saying here, like, actually, I'm good. So when I hear Judgment Day, I hear the makings of Sonny. I hear the makings of Rufus from another country. I hear the makings of Fonny from If Beale Street Could Talk. I hear when I hear Judgment Day. The makings of Richard Henry from Blues for Mr. Charlie. All these black men, because that's who I imagine when I when I hear this poem, um, kind of speaking back against the religious folk and saying, mm, this is what you might say about me. But guess what? If it means I'm being a sinner and it's bound, I'm hell bound, maybe I'm kind of glad because I'm enjoying this life, this earthly life, being amongst the people. This freedom. Uh, and doing me. And so I love this moment in Baldwin, in early Baldwin. Which is a departure from some of the other stuff where he's clearly trying to sort of um, please his dad mm. ple- and speak to a religious public. Here, it's kind of like, hmm, I got something else to say. I-, I think it's also going back to him leaving the church. Yeah. This is him also speaking to those people. Yeah. Who are telling him that, you know, if you leave and you're going to the movies and such, that's a life of sin. <laughs> yeah. You, that That's sinful nature. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. I'm Not only am I going to anyway. do it anyway, I see the hypocrisy in you. Mm. Right? Demis tells me all these things, goes to church on Sunday mm. from they shoulder sprouting wings, shooting crap on Monday. So it's like, actually, I see you, church folk. This is the phenomenon of Saturday night, Sunday morning. Right? What, what you were doing Sunday morning is a hiding place, really, for what you were doing Saturday night. And so oh, man. you see young Baldwin saying, I see you. I see the hypocrisy in this religious discourse and this religious language of judgment. And so if I have to live like that, yeah, I'd rather stay shooting crap. And this is a kind of radically defiant Baldwin that emerges kind of unexpectedly in the context of some of the, the more conservative work. And so I think that's really, really powerful, you know. I, I didn't think about it being its most defiant. And that was that was a very strong reaction for you. It, yeah. It's almost like instantaneous you had that reaction yeah. as soon as you heard well, it. Well, because I've been waiting for it. Mm. I have been waiting for it in this in this collect in this work, right? We see hit bits and pieces of it, but here I actually see the Baldwin of 1964's Blues for Mr. Charlie. Right. The Baldwin uh, who produces Richard Henry, this character 
who is sort of speaking back against the religious folk. I see it here. I see it. And um, them as tells me all these things goes to church on Sunday from their shoulders sprouting wings, shooting crap on Monday. Um, I also love the turn to the vernacular. We don't think, and we talked about this before, we don't think of Baldwin ever. Um, not in his early years, but also certainly not in his, his, his broader career as a writer that is sort of lingering in the vernacular, right? Speaking in African-American vernacular, English, Ebonics, whatever. That wasn't what Baldwin was often doing. And so to see him experimenting with that dialect here um, is interesting. And it, it, is, it is a departure, or should we say a departure? It is a aberration, for what would become classic Baldwin. So to see him rehearsing that here is also interesting. Not only is he rehearsing it here, this is about the second or third time that he's writing That's in right. the vernacular. That's right. In the magpie. Yep. Right? Yep. Black Girl Shouting, he does that. Uh, the Woman at the Well. Yep. He does that. And um, what was the other one? Mississippi Legend. Right. Woman at the Well, because that's Jeebs. Right. So this sounds like Jeebs right. talk. Yeah. It sounds like Jeebs talk. So that's four. Which is, again, we don't even get that many references to Baldwin speaking in the vernacular in his entire literary corpus. We get some of it in the poems that appear in Jimmy's Blues, but there is something that is, there's a disproportionate use yeah. of the vernacular in Baldwin's magpie writings, which is a kind of literary footnote in the writer's repertoire. So I think that that's something for us to kind of look at. I mean, in some ways, this entire poem is the closest thing that we have in this body of work uh, to Baldwin's critique of the religious politics of respectability. Yeah. Yeah, in a defined kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. So now I want to transition to not one of Baldwin's peers, but one of his teachers. Fascinating history. Literally. Fascinating teachers. Yeah. So let's let's uh let's hear the poem first. Let me introduce the poem. Yeah. We'll hear it. And then we'll discuss who it is that well, we'll discuss why this is significant. Yeah. This next poem is called The Dreamer, written by then. Abel Meripolowski. They say, I am a dreamer. These teachers, dull creatures. Who know not what I dream, the visions I see, the castles I build. They say I am dull, but is it not they who are? They who gather all of nature within a printed page, as if that would satisfy the cravings of the soul. What is it to read of beautiful fields with waving grass, fleecy clouds and clear blue skies what is it to read of beautiful things and to analyze beautiful thoughts when all we see are tenement houses and smoky skies So this is Abel Meripolowski, who was a student at Dewitt Clinton High School, and he wrote in the Magpie. 
And this poem was written in 1920. So here he's referring to teachers, probably his, refers to them as dull creatures, and they don't know what he dreams of or the visions that he sees. And I find that interesting because he would eventually become a teacher himself. And in fact, he will go on to become one of James Baldwin's teachers, like we said. Yeah. And so the last part of the poem also interests me because it speaks to old Clinton High School, not new Clinton mm-hmm. High School, because old Clinton High School was in Manhattan on 59th Street. So tell us about that history. Oh, we, said, we, the, said, we said that in the first episode. Listen, if the audience want to know. Episode like 13, You know brother. what? You're right. My bad. My bad. My bad. <laughs> so Clinton High School was established in 1897. Um by 1903, maybe 1908, it moved to 59th Street. It went from 13th Street in Manhattan to 59th Street in Manhattan. And in 1929, they moved up to the Bronx where they are today. Right. And where Baldwin was educated. And that's where Baldwin was educated. So, the Bronx iteration. so uh, Abe Miropol's, Abel Miropolowski's version of Clinton High School was different. And you could tell because at the end, he says, when all we see are tenement houses and smoky skies. Mm. That's not what Baldwin saw up yeah. in the Bronx. Yeah. That's a different Clinton High School. Yeah. I just need that to be said. I yeah. need that to be stated. And so he's describing what Manhattan looked like at the time. Yeah. Anyhow, what are your thoughts on this one briefly? Um, again, this theme of the dreamer um, immediately what comes to mind is how there was something about that that publication. How many times can we say it? This was the publication for the dreamers. Yeah. Um, where they all have this anticipatory quality where they're talking about um, really visions of a world to come and what they want to be in it. And so it's to see how Mariupol is um, in that tradition. Is he writing as Mariupol here or is he still writing as A. Polanski? No, he's writing as Abel Mariupolowski. Ma- he cha- he changed his name Mariupol later on. Yeah. A- he changed. He shortened it. From Abel Mirapolowski to Abe Mirapol. Mm, mm-hmm. And I'm not too sure why. Might have been to 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 uh to not disclose his Jewish identity his Jewish identity. I'm not totally sure. Mm-hmm. But I know he shortened it at some point. But this is published as Abel Mirapolowski. Yeah. But uh, you know, this man with this Abe when we talk about Abe Mirapol, we're talking about um a member of the Communist Party, a member who yeah. was a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. Um radical. Um, thinker, yeah. Um, who produces um, the first black protest song? Yeah. I mean, we can't just not to go on a tangent about Strange Fruit. Excuse me, but we have to remember Strange Fruit really did help to inaugurate a black radical tradition of using popular music as an instrument for tacit black political mobilization. Right. Um, as you mentioned, you know, one author says that Strange Fruit. Uh, really was the musical beginning of the civil rights movement. Yeah. And we see this tradition continuing um, all throughout the black radical tr- tradition up until today and artists like Beyonce, Kendrick uh, Lamar, et cetera. And so to, I say a lot to say to think that Abe Mariupol played a role in that is this beautiful sort of understated history of black Jewish collaboration that again, I've been sort of positing the magpie also belongs to it. It's also a story about that. And so once again, like Brother Abe on the ones and twos, who <laughs> is doing his, you know, little thing, taking the microphone in the in, in the magpie, and later is gonna be writing for Lady Day. Like what? Abe Mariupol? I love the moment. You're still laughing at the ones and twos. Tell I really us, am. That took me out. <laughs> well, tell us about, I mean, I love the moment 
One of the first things, if when you deepen the letters, the, the James Baldwin letters, um, James Baldwin papers at the Schomburg, yeah. one rite of passage, I think, for many Baldwin researchers is um, stumbling upon those letters from Abe Mariupol to yeah. James Baldwin yeah. that are unpublished and yeah. that are on um, sort of tarnished paper um, in, in, in one of the boxes, the dust-filled boxes of the Schomburg. And tell us about like the conversations that are happening there, because I just think it's just a fascinating sort of literary footnote. So Abe Mariupol, well, we'll call him Abe Mariupol going yep. forward. Yep. Again, like I said before, a Clinton High School student wrote this story in 1920, and then 20 years later became a teacher at Clinton High School in which he wrote Strange Fruit, and at the same time he wrote Strange Fruit, he was one of James Baldwin's teachers. Yeah. Right? So while I was at the Schomburg, I came across a letter that Abe Mirapol wrote to James Baldwin yeah. in 1974. Yeah. By 1974, this is already James Baldwin. Yeah. Right? He's yeah. already world-renowned. Yeah. And so here's what Abe Mirapol wrote to Baldwin. I've been wanting to write to you for many years. And since I am very much older than you, sounds like you, Frank, I had better do so before I cease to exist. I taught for 18 years at Dewey Clinton High School, and I believe you were in my first or second term English class. It is impossible to remember names at my age, but I do recall vividly incidents in the past and individuals involved. I remember a small boy with big eyes and circumstances which impressed me so much. I made it a practice to send groups of boys to the blackboard to write one paragraph on a particular subject and then have a general discussion with the class as to how well each boy expresses thoughts and feelings in the paragraph. The subject I suggested to the boys in the paragraph was to describe some aspect of nature. You chose a winter scene in the country, and one phrase I'll never forget was, the house in their little white overcoats. It was a beautifully imaginative expression from a little boy. And so he writes more, right? He writes more and shares more about himself. Baldwin wrote back, right, the same month in 1974. And here's Baldwin's response. Your letter is completely unanswerable. <laughs> he just says outright. So he, your letter is completely unanswerable because it drags up out of darkness and confirms so much. What it confirms is something I must always I must always somewhere have believed without knowing that about the connection between one human life and another, how each of us, whether or not we know it or can face it, is tied to the other. But the attempt to stage such a thing is banal. Better simply to trust it and recognize it as unanswerable. I don't remember what you remember. I remember only the blackboard and the bottomless terror in which I lived in those days. But if I wrote the line which you remember, then I must have trusted you. It never occurred to me, of course, that one of my teachers wrote Strange Fruit, though that seems in retrospect unanswerably logical. Nor could it possibly have occurred to me that one of my teachers raised the Rosenberg children. It's a perfectly senseless thing to say, but I'll say it anyway. It makes me very proud. I hope you'll write me again, and I promise to answer. And then he proceeds yeah. to, to, to end the letter with saying, Yeah. Uh, Starts out a little bitchy. A little bit, but I want to say this last part. In any case, I'm involved. No one is very much older than me, 
So let's attempt a meeting before we cease to exist. You know what, Frank? I really want you to underline that last part right there. No one is very, very much older than me. <laughs> I would love for you to just take the words of Uncle Jimmy at this point. But anyway, it. anyway. so what are your thoughts on this exchange? Well, a couple of things. First of all, my thoughts on this exchange is thank God for public libraries. Okay, why is that? Well, the fact that, you know, you didn't get this exchange off the internets. No, you I got didn't. it in a box. I did. On what this, the 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 fourth floor of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture on 135th Street and Lenox Avenue, in which and, I had to make an appointment for. Right. And I had him and and it was a month wait. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so the fact that they just shout out to public collections yeah. all over the country and all over the world where everyday readers, writers, thinkers, researchers can have access to these Private and intimate moments, right? I love yeah. the intimacy of these of this exchange yeah. and how I jokingly am referring to it as Baldwin being bitchy. And Baldwin did have a kind of legendarily bitchy quality to him. And yeah. I use that phrase lovingly um, and with all the sort of tongue-in-cheek fervor it, 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 it invokes. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he comes around. In the end of yeah, the letter. He does. He does. He does. He does. And, but can we just talk about like what strange and resplendent, wonderful, amazing turn of history is it that the writer of Strange Fruit would also be James Baldwin's teacher, would also be a writer in The Magpie, would also be the writer who was inspiring Baldwin during Baldwin's own years writing in The Magpie to write some of those scenes that we were talking about. I mean, what I really paid attention to in the letter was how Abe is talking about how he was the one prompting these students to write about these the, the country, write about nature, right? And so that actually provides another framework for thinking about what we were calling the kind of romantic quality. Um, it was actually maybe Brother Abe who was saying, write about... Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We are at the end of the season, and there is officially no grease left. <laughs> Frank, you done cooked it all. I can't. Okay. I, can't. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. The possibility yeah. that that is something he learned in class. Oh, what a thought. Yeah. Somebody learned something Somebody in class? Somebody learned in class. What? Right? What is that? And remember, and I'd love to go back and see, I mean, that particular line, he refers to it as, quote, the houses in their little white overcoats. The real sort of question, maybe this is a question for listeners. What bold of the Baldwin of all of the entries of the magpie that we've read, is there any short story or poem where that phrase appears? And if so, we know it is the phrase that um, inspired a Mariupol. I just love the idea of Mariupol and Baldwin being collaborators. Yeah, man. Of, of, of them touching each other's yeah, lives. Man. It's a beautiful yeah, moment. Yeah. And it's a beautiful testimony to the magpie as this gathering place of radical thinkers and dreamers. It's historic. Mm-hmm.